How can the same virus leave some people unscathed but cause death in others? Why is it that kids so rarely have severe cases of COVID-19 while older adults are at such high risk? What is it about our biology that changes over time? Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Galit Alter about how our bodies respond when we are invaded by viruses and how our immune systems change with age. While we focus on SARS-CoV-2, the virus responsible for COVID-19, we also touch on other viruses for comparison. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation. Be sure to check out the other episode to learn about COVID-19 vaccine development. Dr. Galit Alter is a PhD scientist who studies the immune system and has deep expertise in chronic viral infections and vaccine development. She's a professor of medicine at the Reagan Institute of MGH, MIT, and Harvard, and co-director of Harvard's Center for AIDS Research. Dr. Alter received her PhD in experimental medicine from McGill University. I'm thrilled to be chatting with a fellow Canuck. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Dr. Galit Alter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. There's just so much uncertainty around COVID-19 and anything that science can help us in terms of just getting a bit more of a clear picture of what's happening and what we can expect is extremely valuable. So thank you again for your time. My pleasure for being here. Okay, the first thing um, I wanted to talk about is COVID-19 severity. And from what I've heard, this virus is actually pretty remarkable in terms of the massive spectrum of severity that we see. So there's a lot of people who don't even know they have it, and there's other people who are dying from it. Um, I guess I just wanted to get sort of your overall thoughts on that range of severity uh, and how normal it is, and then we can kind of get into um, a little bit of insights on why that is the case and what you know what's what's happening in our bodies to explain that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. That's a really good question. And so. Um, as you'll see from most of this conversation, you know, I don't agree with all of the information that's out there. Okay. And I think it's really important to have this conversation with scientists to really get a feel for what's really going on. So there is nothing really remarkable about the spectrum of disease we're seeing with COVID-19. I think that what people fail to talk about is the fact that, you know, even with a virus like influenza, we see an incredible range of disease manifestations across the ages. You know, the major difference, I think that what we're hearing about all the time on the press is the fact that, you know, the spectrum of disease we see with influenza is not necessarily exactly what we're seeing with coronavirus, with this particular SARS coronavirus 2. And so I think that what's happening is that people are a little bit shocked about the fact that, you know, while both flu and this novel coronavirus are driving disease in the elderly, we see very different manifestations in kids, right, mm -hmm. where influenza is really quite lethal in little children, but it doesn't seem to be the case with this particular novel coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for, for most of these pathogens, these respiratory pathogens, we do see this enormous spectrum where there's some individuals for reasons that are not fully you know, clear to us. We do have people that have you know, very severe reactions or in, in not a fully you know, effective immune response is able to grab hold of that pathogen. But there are plenty of individuals in the same local environment that are seeing the same pathogen and responding really aggressively, really effectively, and essentially not having any symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
So what do we know? So it seems like, is, so is it true to say that children are the main differentiator? So in terms of how adults are responding, is that surprising at all? Or um, again, what's, I mean, when we normally see the range of responses, like what's the sort of relationship with age or does that vary a lot? I mean, I guess the elderly are always vulnerable and then, you know, then how do these yeah, typically so, so, play out? So, you know, so other than, you know, this, the 1918 flu where we had, you know, a huge bolus of infections where we began to see that there were certain populations that were more vulnerable, particularly within the adult population. You know, I, I think that what we're seeing here are typical and expected manifestations of disease severity for the um, for COVID-19 um, in adult populations, similarly to what we had seen with flu before and what we see with flu here. With individuals that have uh, immune compromised um, state, um, either due to pre, you know, existing comorbidities, potentially immune deficiencies, or that are undergoing particular immunosuppressive therapies, mm -hmm. they will be more susceptible because they can't grab hold of the pathogen quite effectively. Mm -hmm. The big questions that keep arising is, you know, why do we see this interesting trend with obesity? Or yes, I was just going to ask you that. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's a really interesting phenomenon there. Maybe we can get into obesity in a minute because I just want to go mm -hmm. back to this elderly versus kid thing and I'll come yeah. back to obesity in a second. So the interesting thing is, is that the elderly, we've always known, right, they have um, a, not the full robust immune system. And so just like we saw with flu, just like we see with lots of other infections like the respiratory syncytial virus, which is one of the biggest killers of the elderly population and not really terribly, you know, um, uh, pathogenic in uh, immune competent adults, mm -hmm. um, you're right that the major discriminator is in the little children. So, mm -hmm. so why it is that kids mm -hmm. are dealing with this coronavirus in a very different way than they would cope with flu is a really interesting immunological um, question. Mm -hmm. I have some theories of why that is, but um, I think we can come back to the scientific theories and maybe focus on the scientific facts first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to so, say. So I was, I was going to ask you to sort of go through the different comorbidities. Yeah. So okay. So let's so let's go through them. So so many of them are very linked. They're all linked to one another, right? So it's very difficult to segregate the um, impact of diabetes from obesity from heart mm -hmm. disease because often these are comorbidities that you know kind of yeah. track together within populations, right? Yeah. So we've always known yeah. that you know individuals who have higher BMIs tend to be more predisposed towards developing diabetes, and so it's really hard to really distinguish which one is the actual key predictor yeah. of you know this disease severity. Mm -hmm. But so why would that be? So so there's some really interesting immunological. Um, discoveries that have occurred over the last, I would say, decade, where we've begun to understand that, interestingly enough, adipose tissue, right, which is mm -hmm. our fat cells, are actually profoundly immune modulatory. Hmm. In fact, fat cells themselves are massively anti-inflammatory. So we have different kinds of fat cells. It's, it's wild. It's the most interesting disease-related disease phenomena that we've begun to understand over the last um, few years. But it's interesting that we have different kinds of fat cells. So we have brown fat, we have white fat. So probably everyone thinks when they're exercising on the machine, they don't care what kind they get rid of right? when they're doing their cardio. But what's really interesting about um, you know, fat is that it does come in different flavors. And some of the fat cells produce um, modulators of the immune system mm -hmm. and the reason they create these modulators is that you know it's a much larger surface it's much more tissue that they have to basically protect and so they create this dampened inflammatory state within this tissue that yeah. essentially oh. keeps that oh. tissue relatively intact and healthy now what happens is that you know because they're producing these um you know signals to the body that does change the way we react to different kinds of pathogens 
And so um, there is this versioning new data out there um, that has begun to really link this change in tissues, this immunomodulatory activity within the body, um, how it impacts our overall immune system and how and why we respond differently to pathogens. Because um, as you may or may not know, if we look at epidemiological studies, there are quite a few infections that occur in individuals with higher BMIs. These are not necessarily pathological infections, okay. but it does occur. The other phenomenon, which is really interesting with higher BMIs, is the metabolic state of the body changes, right? So your metabolism changes. We think of metabolism only being necessarily, you know, in the public involved in telling us whether we're going to put on a pound or lose a pound. Yeah. But in fact, metabolism is really critical for basically regulating the immune system. So by having more glucose around or less glucose around or different levels of metabolic activity, this also changes the rates at which our cells can respond to pathogens when they come in contact with them. So every part of our body is connected, right? We, we don't think about this, but you know, um, the brain is talking to these itty bitty T cells and B cells that are floating in our blood. And the same thing is true for our gut. And so as our m metabolic state changes, you know, due to different kinds of um, comorbidities, like changes in weight, um, this will affect our immunological status and our ability to interact with pathogens in our environment. I've actually done a little bit of digging and trying to understand the reason that BMI is associated with different comorbidities and how much of it is actually directly links and what's the what are the potential mechanisms in it. I guess it depends on the specific uh, morbidity, like you know, pressure on your knee causing knee joint. I mean, some of it's very physical and direct, and other things are more systemic, um, and certainly. Yeah, anyways, the, it's, I think the whole area of adipose biology is fascinating. In fact, the, the lady who sat next to me in grad school was studying fat depots and doing gene expression profiling on um, well, there you fat go. biopsies. So, yeah. So, yeah. But I didn't know so, about but, the but whole, if, I hadn't, the immunological part of it. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it, it's all linked, right? So it, it's yeah. impossible not to have it all linked. Because even, you know, when you talk about, you know, physical pressure right on the knee, during that process, you also have different kinds of levels of interstitial fluid that forms in that area, which allows different kinds of cells to traffic in. Mm -hmm. That kind of tension does create, you know, this imbalance and does recruit different kinds of inflammatory cells. And so as much as we want to, you know, divorce physical, you know, effects from systemic yeah, effects, right. often they're all interlinked because the body's a continuous system. Um, yeah. The other comorbidity that I think is really interesting to talk about is a little bit about the issue about um, hypertension, um, mm -hmm. heart disease, and forms of, um, you know, heart-related um, comorbidities that have come up as being Do you want to maybe important. just define the term comorbidity just because we were using it? With oh, you. yeah, sure. So a, a comorbidity is a pre-existing medical condition um, that can often be, you know, uh, something like hypertension or some sort of heart disease or diabetes, a pre-existing autoimmune disease um, that can essentially make you more vulnerable to developing it or getting infected and ultimately developing disease related to that infection. So it's essentially just a pre-existing state, medical state that might predispose you towards some other type of disease outcome. So um, so these heart disease related phenomena are really interesting because I think there's multiple different theories about why it is that these um, heart related disease comorbidities may influence our outcome to COVID-19. And some of the thinking really does relate to the fact that, you know, in, in general, um, you know, lung capacity is um, a factor, obviously, and lung quality and breathing is going to have a mass, uh, an important influence on how we're going to deal with an infection once it occurs within our lungs. And so if we mm -hmm. think a little bit about, you know, the stress on the heart when we're trying to pump blood into the lung, 
right? And the lung now is trying to basically create enough oxygen for the entire body. You know, the, the amount of work in that, you know, interaction between the lung and the heart and the whole body will change depending on body size. Mm-hmm. And so there are, you know, that there is a physical reason there why, you know, individuals who have pre-existing respiratory conditions or heart conditions may be more vulnerable to this type of disease as well that we have to keep in mind. So the immunological as well as the physical uh, comorbidities or pre-existing conditions that can influence the mm-hmm. um, outcomes following mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2 infection. So I'd love to spend a little bit of time just understanding how your immune system changes with time. So uh, maybe first on, on on older adults, because I'm I'm curious, you know, what about adults, older adults that don't have comorbidities? Like, would, how why is age alone such a risk factor for, for this virus and for others? And um, actually in grad school, I did some um, immune system profiling, like just purifying different subsets of the blood and doing gene expression profiling and yada, yada. So if you looked at it, but I don't know, like if you looked at the basic parameters of a, an, a, an older person's test, like what would you see by age? Do you see different populations, like just sheer numbers of populations changing or is it somehow the quality and their ability or what, what, what is it? And then what's measurable or do, I mean, can we measure these differences and the quality of the immune system uh, in older adults versus regular uh, younger adults? Yeah, so so I think this is still a big black box, right? This is a question that we're still trying to understand immunologically, but the one thing that is critically, um, I guess the one thing that is clearly obvious, I should say, is that the immune system loses some plasticity as we age. So there are some changes in numbers over time. That is clear. We get some redistributions of populations, particularly within populations of cells where you know we will all have t cells but within our yeah. t cells we have i feel like we have like baby mommy and daddy t cells is the yeah. best way to explain it and it's the goldilocks phenomenon right where you'd like to have in a healthy immune system equivalent amounts of babies mommies and daddies but as we age we end up not to um disparage the daddies but we end up with more daddies so more of the bigger cells the older cells i should call them um, and fewer of the baby cells that can eventually grow up and become other kinds of cells within our family of cells. So, so what ends up happening is that you know we do get some redistribution of cells in the body where maybe you'll have a little bit more of you know one kind of cell versus another. But the major difference is in this population of renewable cells, okay. where the cells are able to begin to respond better. So now imagine you know you're. A young person, you're an old person, yeah, you're seeing a new virus for the first time. It's natural that a younger person who has more plasticity in their immune system is going to be able to more rapidly adapt, mm-hmm. you know, respond and mm-hmm. generate responses that are gonna be directed to that pathogen. Mm-hmm. An older individual still has some advantages because they might have some pre existing immunity to something yeah. that's related. And so they can get away with it sometimes mm-hmm. if they're lucky. But the problem is, is they don't have that pre-existing immunity. They're in a little bit of trouble because yeah. now they got to figure out how to use their mommy cells, their daddy cells, right, yeah. to do what their baby cells would have done to counteract that mm-hmm. particular pathogen. So, so right. the big question, right, you were asking is like, why is it that some elderly individuals do fine, other elderly individuals do worse, but in general, more elderly, mm-hmm. you know, don't cope with this virus as well. And I think the reason is, is that you know, I think in general, there is this more difficult road or this more difficult interaction between the elderly and the pathogen. Mm-hmm. But then some of those elderly adults are just lucky and they have some pre-primed immunity or some pre-existing yeah. historical interaction that helps them. 
-hmm. You know, we saw this back in 2009 when H1N1 entered the population. I don't know if you thought about that story, but that was a really interesting story. Yeah, right. Because in that population where flu normally really hurts the elderly, it was the Mm -hmm. elderly that were protected. Mm -hmm. And the reason the elderly were protected there was not because their immune system was better, but because they had seen that particular virus when they were kids. So they had this pre-existing immune response they drew on. They -hmm. made these remarkably potent antibodies to this new influenza virus that hadn't really circulated in the population for a few decades. Mm -hmm. And so they were spared. But then the young adults, particularly women that were of higher BMI, the women were not spared. And so it's really interesting to think about how these pathogens, you know, cause these um, different forms of disease and how within a population, there's so many facets of the immune response that will either predispose yeah. us or protect us from infection. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the today's today's older adults have not encountered anything that's done them a favor and given them an given them an edge, unfortunately. Well, so so there is some emerging data actually really interestingly that there is some potential cross reactivity to other coronaviruses that's now mm. emerging. And so what we have in the population, I don't know how much that's been discussed, is the fact that there are multiple common cold causing coronaviruses that circulate in our population annually and don't really cause much disease. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few that cause um, mild bronchiolitis, but largely in children, interestingly. Mm. So some coronaviruses do affect children. Yeah. Um, but in general, these coronaviruses just cause a little cough and they seem to be relatively innocuous and they don't cause a whole lot of disease. And so there seems to be some overlap in the genetic regions of the spike antigen, particularly in this one domain called S2. Hmm. And there seems to be some pre-existing immunity that's cross-reactive with other coronaviruses that okay. may in fact be helping some individuals um, hmm. to cope with the virus much hmm. more effectively. People always say that, like, the more you sick get, get sick over the years, the better you're going to sort of bank those those for future uses. I mean, would you would you agree with that? That if you're get lots of colds over know. the years I, I or lo- exposed a lot over the years, I love old wives' tales. I I, I, I love <laughs> to hear them. I don't know if there's any scientific you know yeah. data to back them up, but whatever it takes to make people feel better, let's just yeah. go with it. So let's move on to talk about kids. So what is unique about um, their system and what are the theories about why they might be actually doing better um, than you might have expected with this particular virus? Yeah, so, so, so this is a real big, um, this is another big question that we don't fully understand. So what's interesting is that for most respiratory pathogens, kids had to do worse, right? So that's true for pertussis that causes, um, you know, whooping cough. That's true for res- respiratory syncytial virus. It tends to cause more severe disease in Uh, neonates and infants, and same with flu. And so why this coronavirus seems to spare kids is really an interesting phenomenon. Um, What's interesting, though, about the response to this coronavirus is what we start to see in these children is that they don't seem to mount the same flavor of immunity to the pathogen, particularly in their lungs, as the flavor of immunity that's um, occurring in adults. So adults tend to give rise to these highly inflammatory antibody and cellular immune responses that are there to very rapidly intervene and counteract the infection. Conversely, kids are making a strong immune response, so they're not, you know, blind to the infection, but the flavor of immunity is not inflammatory. So the interesting thing about COVID-19 compared to other infections is that what kills people is not the virus, right? It's the inflammation associated with the virus. Mm -hmm. So adults who get sick are probably not getting sick from the virus. They're getting sick from the 
inflammatory response they're creating because there is a virus there, but it's the host's functionality that is, you know, causing this inflammation in the lung and this congestion and this feeling of, you know, um, difficulty to right. breathe. Kids are not doing that. They're not making that same inflammatory mm -hmm. response. So whether this is because they're sensing the virus differently, right? It takes time as children grow to develop a fully mature immune system. So we've known that for a very long time, right? Kids are born with a blank slate. Mm -hmm. Their immune system learns over time how to respond to pathogens. And really importantly, one of the most important learning lessons that kids have to do, which I don't think we give them enough credit for, is they have to learn how to differentiate between friendly bugs and not friendly bugs. Mm -hmm. Because we are colonized, right, by more bugs than we have cells in our body. And so thinking about how they have to distinguish between these two, you know, friends and foes, mm -hmm. you know, allows them to respond to foreign invaders in very different ways. And so one of the potential theories out there now is that the kids, because they're learning and they're kind of developing and they don't really, you know, sense pathogens in the same way, they're just seeing this coronavirus, they're responding to it, they're getting rid of it, but they're not trying to attack it as aggressively as an adult would. Mm. Because they're coming in a little bit more naive. And that kind of more relaxed, you know, not such aggressive response might lead to less symptoms. And with less symptoms, they're more asymptomatic. Hmm. Um, since um, I know you like to, as myself, sort of fight misinformation, I feel like I, I can't help but ask you, what about this whole immune boosting concept? So is there anything people can do um, short of like curing their diabetes or their hypertension, you know, in the short term <laughs> to boost their immunity? No, there isn't. I mean, it's just wear masks, social distance, don't relax. You know, um, it, you know, it, it's no fun to be stuck at home. It's no fun not to interact with our friends. It's no fun to be um, in this kind of constant alert state. But the fact of the matter is, is that the only way that we're going to fight this virus is to fend it off as long as we can until we have a vaccine. Um, there's not really any miraculous, um, you know, way that we can, you know, prevent, you know, boost our immune system in a non-vaccine driven way to um, give us that extra ability to resist this virus. So I think that the best thing we can do is to try to hold it at bay for as long as possible so the vaccines can be as effective as possible as we roll them out um, at a steady rate. There's just, there's just no magic yeah. cure and there's no Lysol or any kind of bleach that's going to take care of this problem. Although I can imagine someone saying, what if I lost those extra 20 pounds? Being healthy is a good thing, right? But it's not a guarantee. Just because you lose 20 pounds is not going to reverse any kind of metabolic effect, you know, that you have in your body that might make you more, um, you know, immune compromised, right? You cannot, you know, even folks who lose all the weight in one shot, it takes years to recalibrate the immune system, right? So we have all these programmed epigenetic changes, right? Which are not genomically controlled, but these are modifications in our genomes that, you know, essentially provide memory of how we can respond, you know, mm -hmm. as we get older, as we've seen mm -hmm. more threats in our life. So just because you lose 20 pounds, you're gonna look great, you're gonna feel great, but ultimately it's the mask that's gonna save you. It's not gonna be those 20 pounds necessarily or rather there's no guarantee that the weight is gonna save you, but the mask certainly will.